0: Doug, welcome back to 10% true. It's great to see you again.
1: Yeah, you too. I I um I guess I didn't bore enough crap out of you last time, Steve. So uh, we've come back for a bit more.
0: i got a very high threshold for that. So
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'll see what I can do today then.
0: Uh for the audience at home, if you um have not watched part one. Go back and watch that. I'll put a link uh, in the description somewhere or there'll be a link somewhere on the screen at the moment. So it won't make sense to you if you're listening to this and uh, you don't understand who Tug is because he's not going to do another intro. Uh, So go back and have a look at the first video. And then um, just as a reminder, uh, please like and share this content if you think it's any good. And uh, feedback to us if you have anything you wanted to ask Tug. I'm sure if you leave a question in the comments, he will uh, drop by and attempt to answer that for you. Um, and similarly if you think it's good then share it with other people who you think might get a kick out of listening to Tug tell his stories. So with the uh, administration out the way, Tug there was one thing that you talked about in the last episode and today we're going to round off your career flying in RAF Germany, some of the detachments you did out to Cyprus and and the Falklands um, and then your return to the UK and some of the experiences you had there. But before we do that I felt a little bad that in the last episode you had made a point of saying that the navs never really get the recognition they deserve and i never called you on it in terms of saying well well why is that or what is it that they did to deserve that recognition if that's not a strange thing to say so would you start maybe by telling us a little bit about the relationship between pilot and nav and what it was exactly that the nav was doing that was so important
1: yeah so we um we're a twin sea airplane and um uh, we spoke last time about why i ended up going to a twin seat uh, aeroplane um and <clears throat> i think uh, i think those pilots that have flown twin seat see the true value of flying with somebody else who's who's actually helping you um and we we had this old adage that 1 plus 1 had to equal at least 1 and uh, had to equal at least 2 uh, in the cockpit but generally uh, when you flew with somebody else they it was almost like an obligation that you gave your very best uh, to uh, to that other person in the cockpit, and I'm sure I was better on quite a lot of trips because of the uh, support uh, that I had from uh, from navigators. Um, if you look at uh, uh, an airplane like the Phantom, I, I'm guessing it's similar in things like um, uh, twin seat uh, bomber aircraft, but the, there was a bit of a uh, almost a, a, a a real brotherhood uh, between fighter crews in in my experience, even when I was flying with uh, with navs i didn 't uh, particularly get along with on the OCU and my my second squadron it was always it was always that uh, as I said before, when the canopies come down we we give our best uh, uh, for each other uh, when I first started flying with um, uh, with navigators on the OCU, even though I was being assessed i was I was astounded that there was somebody in the cockpit that was actually helping me to to operate the aircraft because prior to that, whenever I've flown with somebody else, it was an instructor who was assessing me. Now, these navs, the staff navs were assessing me at the same time, Uh, but they were under pressure to perform as well. And I've done a couple of backseat rides in the Phantom. It's horrible, absolutely horrible uh, black hole. And they crouch over this radar screen uh, with a couple of uh, a control panel and a and a hand controller and it's a hard job especially when you've got a chimp finger baboon like me in the front who's raging the aeroplane around at a high g with little or no respect for either the aeroplane or or our bodies in, inside it so the the job that they did was uh, just incredible I, i've no idea how they uh, how they did it finding a target on the radar on that old style radar was very, very difficult indeed, and took real skill uh, with the scanner, with the the various games that the the navs played with on on the radar. I've flown uh, my own radar in other aeroplanes, more modern aeroplanes, and it was a dream. You know, the the thing, yeah, to search in the right place, but the the radar did it for you and and presented it in such a beautiful manner. It's very easy to do intercepts. So these guys in the back, uh, most of their capacity is taken up with, finding that thing on the radar, assessing what it's doing on the uh, on the scope, backing it up with the mental maths as well. Incredible uh, skills to be able to do that and then also communicate to me in the front what they're seeing, what they're doing, what I need to do with the aeroplane to make the intercept work, to make the uh, to make the shots work. So that was the OCU. Um, Then I went to Germany where primarily we were down at low level in a hot, sweaty, Environment, and they were doing the same thing, uh, but uh, of course the radar didn't uh, perform quite as well at low level. Uh, they had uh, always the ground to uh, to take into consideration. Whenever their heads down, they feel the manoeuvring of the aeroplane, um, and they have to have an awareness of whether I've put the aeroplane in a situation where we're not going to get out of, and we'll end up having to eject. As has happened a couple of uh, a couple of times. So I, I I stand by everything I've ever said about uh, navigators, particularly in the in the Phantom. Um, I don't have that single seat mentality. I've flown single seat, I enjoyed it, but there's just something very special about sharing the experience with somebody who is trying to be as professional as you and is probably more professional uh, than you. So I, I've always, why wouldn't you speak these uh, these people up? I mean, I've flown with some navs who. Have sucked the situational awareness out of me uh, because and I'd spent <clears throat> a long time trying to manage them. I can guarantee um, and there's a lot more NAVs have had that experience with me when I was a young uh, when I was a young pilot. So there's a lot of give and take uh, uh, with that. But I I made it my mission in in the book that I wrote to uh, focus on the NAVs because they were the people that I that I flew with uh, predominantly. They turned me into the pilot that I am. That I am today that that first uh frontline aeroplane that you fly is a brilliant uh, brilliant school uh for teaching you how to conduct yourself as an aviator and and they were the uh they were the teachers to a uh, to a great extent
0: we're hopefully going to come back and do a another episode where you'll talk about your time flying the hornet on exchange and then you flew the Tornado f3 if i remember yeah. correctly so uh, i'm curious to know then Contrasting your later experiences, you just, just said you've flown the aircraft around the radar yourself with the you know, presumably the APG sixty-five. Five. Is it? Yep. Yeah, sixty-five yep. on the Hornet and um, blue. Was it Blue Fox or something on the F three? Can't remember what it's called on the F three. I don't know.
1: I've, I've tried to. Uh, I've tried to blank that whole period out of my mind. <laughs> if uh, If that, I'm happy to come on and talk about it, but that'll be more like therapy for me.
0: Okay. <laughs> but but would you um, would you place the same um, importance on uh, having that extra aer- uh, that extra person in the aeroplane, as uh, the technology advanced over the years. In other words, if you were to go into to combat, let's say in a Hornet, would you prefer to go and do it in a, a D model Marine Hornet with a guy in the back, or would you prefer to go as a as a C model or an A model single seat?
1: I've done both. Um, my first tour was uh, was on the D model, so I was with the Marine Corps. Um, and um, but you could do everything in the front of that aeroplane that anybody in the back could do. Um, <clears throat> well, why would you do that? You know, you've got an extra, uh, the wisdom of crowds, you know, you've got an extra head in there. Uh, and when it comes to a visual fight, you've got an extra pair of eyes, you know, to keep, uh, keep tally on the, on the bandit. As you go into a, uh, a big fight, you've got uh, an extra pair of eyes to find the other four aeroplanes that you're trying to fight against and to keep an eye on your wingman as, uh, as well. So technology is great; uh, it really is, and uh, and something like the Hornet radar was a beautiful thing to uh, to look at. It made intercepts extremely easy. But the bottom line is, you still you still got to get into a position to uh, to pull the trigger. And while I'm getting into that position to pull the trigger, isn't it just awesome that somebody's looking out the rear of our airplane to stop us from getting shot down? And I've lost count of the number of times I was just about to take a shot. And my nav uh, in a Phantom or a Tornado or a uh, Wizzo in a in an FAT has, uh, has shouted break left. And I've just got to let the shot go. Break left, stick chaff and flares out, saved our lives. And now we're fighting against somebody who I didn't see because I was so con- uh, concentrated on, on one particular thing. Uh, I flew single seat Hornets. It just changed my um, it just changes your um, approach to. Uh, intercepts and a, and a visual fight you just got to deal with what you've got in the cockpit but when you've got that extra asset it, it's it's a great thing when it when it works uh, between you
0: you made reference to hot and sweaty situations and in terms of the low- level environment in germany uh, cyprus was also presumably hot and sweaty and that is another prominent feature uh, and landmark i suppose you would say in your recollections. Can you tell us a little bit about what went on in Cyprus, both from a flying and a a recreational point of view?
1: Yeah, so uh, uh, Cyprus featured a a few times, I think, uh, uh, for me. First off, um, we went there on a ranger. Um, I don't know if you've heard of these, but uh, every year uh, frontline squadrons would get 12 rangers. And these were take two aeroplanes anywhere in Europe and um, for the weekend. Uh, fly off on a Friday, uh, come back on the uh, on the Sunday, uh, sorry on the on the Monday morning. So we'd have a whole weekend somewhere, and you just chose somewhere to uh, to go, and and the rangers were divvied up amongst uh, amongst the squadron, and um, and it was a, it was kind of like a singly thing. A lot of the time, a lot of single guys got the rangers. But there'd always have to be a duty adult uh, go along, maybe a flight commander <laughs> or a senior uh, flight lieutenant. Who, hey, t- To tell you the truth, in my experience, were usually the worst, uh, worst people. These people, we had a, we had one flight commander. He had hollow legs. I have never <laughs> seen anybody drink quite so much uh, as this guy. Luckily, he was a backseater. Uh, but yeah, he, he was, uh, he had legendary hollow legs. Anyway, by the by, um, the first time I went to Cyprus was on one of these rangers went with um, uh, a a nav who was about a month ahead of me on the squadron. I think I'd probably only had about 120 hours on the aeroplane and uh, and, and a duty adult uh, crew. And um, I'd heard legendary stories about Cyprus. So the Phantom used to go there every year for about four to six weeks and do air-to-air gunnery, and that's where they qualified air-to-air gunnery. So I missed uh, that armament practice camp, APC, with 92 Squadron. I, I arrived just as they were coming back from APC. Um, but I still, I, I heard all of these stories about um, about uh, Cyprus and such. So eventually I get to go there. We arrive um, steaming hot and, um, and we arrived just before lunchtime and the bar was about to close. Uh, so it had a, a window where it, it closed from about one o'clock till five o'clock. So we arrive about uh, about twelve, and we have to put the jets to bed, you know, service them get them refueled and such. And so the two navs um, said, "Right, we'll go to the bar and secure some drinks uh, while the two pilots put the airplane to bed." That's a fair deal. So, um, and the, the the senior nav said, um, "So, um, a jug of brandy sour, then, you know?" And the, and the uh, the pilot, the other pilot, said, "Yep." Yeah. My nav said, uh, "Yes." Tug, what about you? I said, yeah, if there's, uh, I'll take a drink out of the jug, you know, um, uh, and whatnot. And then this guy looked at me and he went, "No, it's a jug each." And I went, "Oh, it's that kind of weekend, then, is it?" So that that was basically Cyprus. It was a uh, it was a food and drinkathon. Uh, get sunburned, uh, feel poorly, and and come home after <laughs> the weekend. Uh, and we used to stay in a, a block. Um, uh, that was known as Animal House uh, from the uh, from the film, and you walked up to it. It's this legendary bit of uh, accommodation. It, it was the usual, you know, shitty RAF uh, accommodation. You know, abroad in somewhere in the Commonwealth uh, sort of thing. And um, but it was it was decorated with all the squadron badges that were all painted on the on the sides of the building and on the front. And it was like, God, here I am. I'm staying in this place that I've heard of. And like I said, it was pretty crappy, but but it, it was it was what it was. And came back again on the uh, on the Monday. Um, but then uh, the first Gulf War was uh, was building up and we deployed um, oh, four, uh initially, I think it was about eight Phantoms to Cyprus because it was the forward airhead for resupply into Saudi Arabia. Uh, and all the, all the units came through Akrotiri to to go into Saudi Arabia. Um, so they, they, it was funny. In the build-up, they sent the, the most experienced crews from 92 Squadron and 19, and they made a joint um, detachment, and off they went for six weeks. Well, then the war didn't start, so they brought them home and sent the next group of uh, very experienced people out for six weeks, and the war didn't start again. So uh, now it was, uh, let's go down to like a Falkland Islands thing where we have four aeroplanes and five crews. Uh, and the next thing, I'm on the next uh, Roermont down there. And um, and we were there just as the war was starting to, uh, uh, to build up. In fact, I was airborne on the Charlie 130 on the way back to Wildenrath the like, night war started when the GR1s first went in. But we had six, it was over Christmas and New Year, and it was... Um, we we ran it like a Falklands program where you had two days as fly crew, two days as uh, day off, two days Q one, two days Q two, and two days as uh, desk and duty authorizer uh, sort of thing, and it ran on a on a well well tried and tested uh, program, um, and you get into the groove, and um, we flew quite a we we flew quite a bit uh, on that two waves a day of uh, two airplanes each. Uh, got quite a few scrambles uh, down there, one particularly unpleasant one at night, was generally against the Israelis um, or uh, the um, carriers. So I I think, I can't remember what the names were, maybe it was the Saratoga was um, cruising out into the Gulf and JFK was cruising back and they kind of crossed over in the middle. Well, we fought F-14s and F-18s off those carriers, working them up basically for, uh, for the war. Um, and in the evenings it was it was classic Cyprus it was uh, you go down to the local kebab house and have the uh the sort of meze kebab uh, that was um almost like uh, a rite of passage in Cyprus um uh, you, we we drank a fair bit because we were almost like Brits on uh, on holiday uh, and we got into the groove of uh, of doing that um of doing that falkland style um uh program which is it was almost like in our blood because we we'd done it we'd done it so often, but it was a great, it was a great death. Um And like I said, I, I got more scrambles down there than I did anywhere else. So um, I was I was really I was really into it. At that uh, at that point I was reasonably um, experienced uh, at that time as well. I had quite a few hours under my belt and and felt as though I was on on top of my game.
0: I'd like to talk about the scrambles and the the workups you did with the Hornet and the the Tomcat guys. Um, but just before you, maybe sort of elucidate on that. Uh, I'm curious about the the fighter pilot sort of go to war, prove yourself part that must have existed and probably does still exist within you, and seeing the GRs, the Tornado GRs, that the. the um, uh, jaguar guys go off to war i know the f3s went more as a sort of token gesture i understand they didn't have any iff they had no um, yeah. chaff flare they had no real wolf capability there was some kind of bar cap that was kept right at the back yeah. you know it would have been everything would have had to have gone to shit for them to have actually done anything so but as a sort of proud phantom driver how did you feel about your airframe not being involved in desert shield or desert storm as it became when the war kicked off what was your uh, what were the emotions and the thoughts around that
1: yeah so um uh, it was a political decision i think i might be talking out of turn but um uh we just sold the f3 to saudi arabia so it would have looked um a little uncomfortable i think if um they'd put the f3 into cyprus and the f4 into um um into daran i think that would have um, been a little bit politically unacceptable However, so um, the the idea is that, bearing in mind we we had a cold war that, whether people like like it or not, kept kept the peace in the world. Okay, it was an uneasy peace, but uh, but it was it, it got a bit, stayed and boring, and and that was that. But we worked hard and we trained hard in order that uh, we would be ready should uh, should the balloon go up. So when there was a uh, an opportunity to be in an operational theatre, I, I wouldn't say go to war, but be in an operational theatre, then obviously we <clears throat> we wanted to be there just as every other every other uh, air crew did. Uh, there's always this thing that you want to prove yourself uh, uh, properly, and uh, because that's why you've done all of your training. I don't think anybody has a a desire to um, uh, to go into conflict uh, at all. I, I think this is one of the big misnomers I hear. You know, lots of chat from uh, uh, from pacifists. I go for, to dinner with people and 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 sit there and <clears throat> and listen to a lot of chat from uh, from people who who say they're pacifists and, and why do we have to have a military and stuff like that. And I think people forget that most people in the military are by definition pacifists. You know, we don't particularly uh, want conflict, but somebody needs to stand up when uh, when that conflict is there. And so, for us not to go into theatre. I think that disappointed quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of people. Bear in mind, um, I wasn't on the first Roumound, you know, to even go to Cyprus. So uh, I was pretty pissed about uh, about that. But there are, you know, there were legends on this uh, on the Phantom ahead of me. So why the hell would I have been on the first uh, the first Rulmont? So multiply that by uh, by ten, and that's basically what people thought of us not going into theatre with our. Brilliant, war proven, uh, war proven aeroplane,
0: you know. One of the, uh, I think one of the sorties you, you were flying at that time was the one you recounted on our last episode where you talked about flame coming out the front, bad, flame out the back, good. Uh, it was the uh surge, I think, where you you cooked the engine by trying to relight it. I think that happened on, was it on? Oh, that no, that,
1: no, that was in Germany. Oh, um, that was in Germany. Uh, okay. Yeah, 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 no, I no, got it. I, the, the way I I'll make it sound like every trip was a uh, an adventurous disaster, you know, but uh, uh, but it wasn't. I think about so many engine failures that they all kind of they all kind of, uh, okay. they all kind of uh, 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 merge into one. Now the scary, uh, I suppose, the scary thing that we had in um, uh, in Cyprus was we had a night scramble, and um, it, it's a long old story, but I'll 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 fill you in because you know it, it, we. We we have to talk about the background too. So we got to the point where um, we were on ten minutes readiness, I think, and then overnight um, we reckoned we could do ten minutes from the mess. So <clears throat> Q one crew, which uh, which I was with uh, with Jeff, my my nav, um, we we would um, we would all go over in the in the kind of Sherpa van to the mess to have dinner. And we were allowed this dispensation to eat dinner in the mess and then go straight back to uh, to queue after we'd eaten. But we had a pager uh, from the um, uh, from Mount Olympus uh, radar, and um, and the uh, the, pay, the page for a scramble was uh, was four nights. And, and bearing in mind it's it's old LED lights, so it's just square nines uh, like that. So we'd uh, we'd just sat down to eat. Um, we're in jeep pants, uh, uh, by the way, um, just sat down to eat. Our life jackets and helmets are in the van. And the uh, the guy who was on duty driver at the time, one of the pilots, the, the pager goes off and we launched out of our chairs, uh, you know, and everybody in the dining room's looking up as QRA gets launched from the dining room. And, and he shouts, it's okay, lads. It's okay. It's four sixes. And so we we all sat down. You can see what's coming. We didn't at the time. We went, oh, thank God for that. Sat down, registered. Hold on. What, what does four sixes mean? You know, what's the code for? Because we had four ones and four twos or something. What's four sixes? And he went, I don't know. I'm going to decode over that. Somebody took the pager, turned it upside down. It's four nines, you pillar. you know. And we run for the Sherpa again. Well, he drives like a madman, drives us straight to the jets. Um, the hooter's gone off, so the ground crew are already there. Um, and we launch um, at, uh, at night. And um, we end up um, Q2s at cockpit. We're airborne, and we end up intercepting this thing. And it's down at low level, and we keep getting locked up by uh, by stuff. And I'm getting angrier and angrier because you know how dare these people you know uh, annoy uh, you know interrupt our dinner for starters. Um, and um, and they try we we try and do these uh, they're called phase three uh, VIDs. So visual ident, but it's at night with the lights out. So you have to use cultural lighting to try and light up the aeroplane. Well, of course we're in the middle of uh, the Mediterranean. There's no cultural lighting. There just happens to be massive thunderstorms all over the place. And um, and this guy tries to drag us down into the uh, into the sea. So I got even crosser. And um, <clears throat> and Jeff was a brilliant older nav who um, calmed me down. I think I was angry young man in those days. He was brilliant for me. He really calmed me down. And this is back to the whole thing of a navigator getting the very best out of me and making me a better pilot. He was he was just awesome. So anyway, we um, there were no night vision goggles in those days. And Q2, for some reason, had the night scope. We had these old night scopes. It was like a big axe handle with a massive uh, uh, lens on it. And the nabs looked like that through it. And it was bloody rubbish. But uh, they launched q2 as well they tried an intercept while we held off couldn't see anything on the night scope and so the uh, the pilot of q2 was quite an experienced guy uh, briefed up and said uh, look I've got an idea you fly close formation on me at night um I'll fly a vid and then I'll tell you when but I'll put the burners in and I'll just fly up like that and try and light this guy up with um uh, with our afterburners and uh, I thought it was planned stupid, but we 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 had no other option at the time. So I flew close formation on on him at night, which is scary enough during the day, let alone at night. He flew a beautiful, uh, smooth visual ident. So his nav was awesome on the radar as well. Uh, into uh, into about 300 yards from this aeroplane, and. Um, I just locked on the instruments as he said um it counted down to uh to three two one he put the burners in I went straight onto my instruments and uh and my nav jeff looked out and it and it bloody worked and and he uh he pulled up like that and the uh, afterburners lit up this Israeli Electra we made the eye dent and then um we were shot of gas and had to go straight line home while Q2 shadowed them for a bit. And on the way home, we uh, we had no gas to play with at all. Um, we were in the middle of a thunderstorm, and this unholy blue light um, was uh, was coming up my the front of my uh, screen, and uh, and was inside the uh, inside the canopy and around the isthmus. I could take my glove off, put my hand up, and it was almost like I could touch it. it was St Elmo's fire. I'd seen it once before in flying training, but nothing like this. I mean, it was spectacular. And it took my breath away. Um, and then uh, we got struck by lightning, uh, which because St. Elmo's fire is one of the bloody precursors to let you know you're in a thunderstorm. And you're about to get struck by lightning. And there we were, got struck by lightning on the right-hand wing. And so my moment of euphoria uh, at uh, touching the hand of God, you know, in my with the uh, heavenly blue light, uh, turned into something uh, not quite so uh, pleasant and um, we managed to get we got back down on the ground uh, uh, safely you know but that was uh, I tell you what give me a massive engine surge any day of the week uh, rather than <laughs> by lightning you know it was uh, it was pretty uh, pretty scary but but that's that
0: did it triple your generators and stuff offline did you have to reset and everything or did the airplane just carry on doing its thing
1: don't even remember. It probably just, uh, do you know what? Being the phantom, it, it it probably just kind of looked at the wing and went, it, you <laughs> know, got another wing. Uh, that's uh, it, uh, it, it. Do you know what? I, I you kind of get the impression it, it it maybe looked up at God and said, "Is that the best you can do?" You know, because uh, you you should have seen the shit we've just been doing, mate. You know, it was. Uh, I, I suppose it was that sort of thing. Tell you the truth, I don't remember. I think I was probably shitting myself at at that point.
0: Did you did you as as a um, a unit or did the RAF ever make uh, any contact with the Israelis to say what are you playing at? I mean that's not a particularly friendly thing to do to try and drag you into the sea. They must have known who who it was that was shadowing them. Who they must have known you were going to try and go and find out who was in that airspace. What
1: uh, way above uh, I, I suppose way above my uh, my pay grade uh steve i i don't know what you don't know what goes on at those uh those exalted levels i mean i was a bit i think i was angry because a few days before we did we'd um uh intercepted an israeli oh god what was it um oh i can't remember uh my mind goes blank uh sort of thing the americans launch off the carrier with the uh the e2 oh, the e2, Black, the, e2. That's the fact. Yeah. yeah. So we we, um, we intercepted an E two, and uh, and it was not very pleasant. We're all waving at uh, at each other. Uh, they were they were flying extremely slowly. So I was uh, fully armed Phantom going across uh, like that. You know, hanging on the compressor blades. And we kept going round and going round and waving at them. And um, and then to be almost dragged into the sea by something, uh, you know, wasn't quite cricket, I guess.
0: I actually had to look that up. I had to look up what an electra was. I'd never heard of it. So, and and if you're going to Google, maybe my Google skills are just not that good. But I I found I couldn't find the electra on first trying Google. So, so I wondered whether or not it was because of the nature of the aeroplane and the nature of the mission it was conducting that meant that those sort of, sort of things were you know acceptable to them. If um,
1: maybe know. or maybe it's just that that's what we called it, and um, and it was difficult to find because it was you know it. That Maybe that name's not really attached to it um, formally uh, somewhere. And it is such a long time ago that uh, that they were about that um, maybe that was it.
0: Yeah. You also talked about the Hornet and the Tomcat guys. And I, I love the way that you approached flying against the Tomcat, which I suppose on paper has all this capability that you didn't. Um, can you describe a little bit about... And you, you talk about this a couple of times, actually, sort of sneaky tactics, tricky, tricky dicky um, behavior around not just flying against the US Navy, but also when you were going to go and do your, I think you called it a Volkswagen. No, you didn't call it, you called it Mercedes. Oh,
1: Mercedes split, yeah. Mercedes yeah. split.
0: So even when you're flying against your own um, squadron, you're doing the same thing. But can you yeah. talk a little bit about what what you did against the Tomcats and how it is that, you know, you were ingenious enough to be able to defeat them initially, at least?
1: Yeah, let's come back to the Mercedes split though, because uh, I, that uh, that is a um, a sortie called one v one v one where you fight against two other aeroplanes, but they're not fighting together. We're we're all one for one. It's the most fun you can have with your trousers on by by a long a long shot. So we'll come back to that. Uh, but yeah, I I learned um, from uh, an, another navigator. Um, we were out in a place called Detimomano where we we go to. Um, uh, do full-on air combat in clean aeroplanes and it's where a fighter squadron really bonds and uh, it's my most favourite place uh, to fly is uh, is dechy uh, However uh, the first time I was there I flew with the weapons instructor uh, leader who was a navigator on 92 squadron. Very very cool guy and very capable and um, we were going up against some F-15s uh, and we just expected to be shot down the whole time. Well no we didn't. We would we had this pathological hatred of being shot down, and so he taught me all of uh, that. Um, the way we get into the fight is by deception, and came up with some tactics for this particular trip. Um, and we had a you know a list of uh, god, uh, maybe thirty different sneaky things we'd do on the way into the fight, because what you've got to do is you've got to avoid um, being shot down by the big stick. Uh, that they've got and if their radar is better than ours and they get contact first then they're dictating the fight and so that was the deal and we expected the same thing against the f-14s uh, when we were in cyprus so the first group we flew against were on saratoga which was going out to um uh to the gulf so they weren't the sharpest um of aviators so we were going, we had two Phantoms against four F-14s. I mean, it's ludicrous uh, uh, stacked against us. Uh, and I was leading this particular one. And um, and I, I did like a deception uh, tactic um, uh, like I'd been taught by our weapons leader and just changed it a little bit, the fact that we were grossly outnumbered as opposed to just uh, grossly outgunned. Um, and I was willing, I was willing to lose one of us and I set myself up as the sacrificial lamb uh, in order to get our other guy in unseen and give them a uh, give them a problem. So it, there's all sorts of things that we 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 can do um, where we'll put maybe one guy out front. Or we'll come in very fast. One guy out front. About the time you would think they're going to take their first shots, he turns around, and as you meet like that, um, you then do that sort of thing. Um, and I, I later learned the Americans call it a Doppler pick it's a uh, to do with basketball uh, tactics and you do that and they go in like that and you then come in down on the deck at low level where hopefully the radar hasn't seen you because they're so um, intent on shooting this guy that's coming hot towards them so they've only ever seen two blips, and now they're only seeing one, but they're probably thinking we're together. And, and it's all that uh, kind of crazy stuff that uh, that you do, always with a massive height split mm-hmm. so that they've got to split the radars. Somebody has to look high, somebody has to look low. We're not all in the same piece of airspace. So we did, uh, I think I did something like that. Did I turn around or, or no, my, my wingman went out the front, I think, he did the turn around. And then he just kept going like that, and I did the Doppler pick uh, down. It was something like that. Or it might have been I didn't start at the proper start point. I started 20 miles ahead without telling them. You know, there's always a bit of cheating in there as well. Well, they bit off on me, but then they saw this thing coming in at, you know, uh, supersonic speeds. Um, And, of course, because they all wanted to shoot the first thing that they see, I think they all just focused on uh, on me. Now, we had this thing where shots don't count until you merge. So um, until the first two aeroplanes merged. Now, they had two in the front and two quite a way back. Well, as soon as I've merged with the front one, everything's live. Well, they didn't quite tweak that. So as soon as I merged with the first one, we shot one of the ones at the back. And, and it, you know, you can't cry foul at that point because that's the rules, mate. Uh, These two at the front start turning on us. And you can just imagine it's a massive aeroplane is the F-14 and its wings went like that and they started turning. And I thought, we're going to be dead soon. But I tell you what, I can get another shot here. I think we shot at least one, maybe two. Or maybe I was just saddling up behind the second one as, you know, about 15 missiles punctured my, uh, uh, the back of my head. But then my number two got in and shot at least two of them. So, we, we lost one Phantom. They probably lost three F 14s, all through a bit of deception, a bit of cheating, and a bit of, um, let's say, liberal um, application of the rules. Now, those, it, it may sound like, oh, God, look at us. We're, we're just cheating all the time. Well, if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. How, what do we want to do? Just, Rage in at maybe Mac 1.2 and get shot in the face by four F-14s, and we get no benefit out of that whatsoever. And neither do they either. They ended up turning. They ended up biting off on one aeroplane, which they'd brief, pre briefed not to do. It was a valuable lesson for them. And and to tell you the truth, it was a whole lot of fun. It was it was much more fun than just you know sitting at 30 miles away from each other, pulling the trigger and and calling kills. Um, it, you know, it, it was just it was proper fighter crew type stuff and if they thought hard enough they'd have applied the rules the same way we did they might have cheated a little bit but you know what they had this big thing that they were four f-14 guys uh they were going against two old legacy aeroplanes what the hell could the f-4 do against them and and we we embarrassed them a little bit and uh you know we had a bit of banter on the uh on the phone afterwards when we debriefed and decided we'd add, we'd all had fun and let's do it again sometime. And that was generally how it, uh, how it went. Even when we were expected to lose, but I, I, I state again, 80% of the fights we went into, uh, I'm pretty sure we won. Um, there was no pressure on us to win at all. So we'd do whatever we could uh, to win. And And if people got caught out by a bit of cheating and a bit of rules, then I'm sorry, guys, you weren't trying hard enough. You know what? You, you don't really understand what it is to be fighter pilot and fighter navigator here. Yeah.
0: Speaking of of which, again, from a um, maybe a philosophical or perhaps a mental point of view, you just said that you had an aversion as a community and, and obviously you as an individual had an aversion to being shot down, which you, I understand. When you're training given the nature of the business that you're in and the Cold War, the balloon could go up, you could actually be doing this for real tomorrow. How personally do you take it when you're shot down in, in, an, in a training environment? And do you ruminate on that? I mean, do you go back at the, to your room at night and think, well, I'd be dead now if this were real? Or do, do you actually just put those thoughts away and this just becomes sort of night's jousting in, in a competition rather than a, a, a real battle?
1: Yeah, do you know what? I don't think I ever thought for real I would be dead. That doesn't mean to say I wasn't mad every time I got shot down. It's humiliating. It, it just is. I, in fact, let me, you happy for me to weave this one v, one v one, v, one uh, thing back yeah. in? So um, um, we we send three aeroplanes airborne and we do what's called the Mercedes split. So we, we're in uh, formation with each other. And at the outwards turn, leader goes straight ahead. Number two turns right through 120 degrees. Number three turns left through 120 degrees. And we make the uh, sign of the Mercedes uh, sign. Uh, and it's up to the leader when he decides um, uh, when you can turn in. Um, you turn in and you have to go through within five miles of the centre point to make your weapons live. And then you fight against whoever you see. And there's all sorts of little tricks that you pull. Always lead the trick because you can... you then the one that calls the inwards turn and you always turn in 10 seconds before you call inwards turn because you're in charge and why wouldn't you uh, cheat? Uh, but you might hang out, you might hang out and let the other two get live, fight their way, uh, you know, uh, into a neutral fight. You then squeeze through the, um, uh, the center point, make weapons line and shoot them both down. Uh, we have a kill removal thing where you'll, uh, you'll be killed. If you, these fights just go on, they're constants. I, I've, I don't think I've ever seen anybody shoot the other two down and and end the fight. So we end up doing one fight that lasts about 10 minutes tops. And then we're out of gas and we have to we have to come home. Um, So what you might do is um, if you if you get killed, you go away from the fight for about 30 seconds and then you're regenerated and you come back in and it's it just feeds the fire. Well, I've, done that. I've I've followed a guy out of the fight, you know, uh, before. It he, he gets regenerated 30 seconds later. And as he turns in, you just shoot him uh, again. And again, these are things that have all happened to me and I've done them to other people. When you get shot down, particularly when you do 1v1 um, against uh, a, a buddy of yours on the squadron and they shoot you down, you, you cannot rub that out until you fly again. And it's a humiliating thing to be shot down. It's even more humiliating if he guns you. You know, uh, the gun is a very, very personal weapon. Um, you have to, it, it's quite difficult to actually get into position to gun somebody. And so it's almost like the guy is saying, Do you know what? I couldn't be bothered to waste a missile on you. You know, the bullets are cheaper. I'll, uh, I'll gun you. Uh, that's it, because I can. If somebody guns you, my God, you're wearing that until the next uh, the next trip, until you can gun them or or shoot them down or or shoot somebody else down, you know, just to take your anger out uh, on them. So I always took it personally. I think if you didn't take it personally, you probably shouldn't have been in that uh, that cockpit. But I suppose, again, I uh, I think you'll see through uh, both of these interviews. I was pretty naive. You know, I was a young, young kid and I was naive about the, the, the grander scheme of things. I didn't once think, "Oh my God, I'm I would be dead for real there." I because to tell you the truth, we didn't rate the Soviets. You know, um, that was it. If if they if they were if they managed to shoot me down, I was having a hell of a bad day, and so was the rest of the air force. You know, uh, so we had this confidence that we could take them on. Um, but if if one of my buddies uh, shot me down, I, I just loathed it, hated it.
0: The as you know, you've done the exchange us, but as, as you know, the uh, the US uh, armed forces have a you know, sort of Top Gun type competitions ladders within squadrons to show who's yeah. the, the best. The RAF presumably does the same, or did the same.
1: I've, I've had, to, I've seen uh, one squadron that had a uh, an air combat ladder. Um, we'd uh, when I was teaching air combat, um, I, uh, I I owned the air combat phase and the air defense phase. And um I deliberately didn't put a ladder uh in there because, you know, it, it it wasn't good for the students to to see that. However, what we what I constantly did was um was bantered that um uh you know, come and see me, I'll I'll teach you how to beat any instructor on this squadron. Uh, sort of thing, and uh, and we'd have banter in the uh, in the crew room about how those trips had gone. Bear in mind, there's a little bit of balance that um, uh, we used banter to help students get over poor performance, uh, particularly in air combat and and such. Work up a bit of aggression uh, with them for for next time, but all lighthearted, never never abuse or or, or anything like that. My final squadron uh, was on Tornado F three. And um, we didn't have an air combat uh, ladder, but I introduced a banter uh, ladder uh, because there were some people on the squadron who were superstars at banter and some who were just, oh, my God, they suck the joy out of living every day. uh yet yet convinced themselves they were the funniest people on the uh, on the squadron so i set up a banter ladder and uh, and because i set it up i could put whoever i wanted at the top and uh, and down at the bottom it was banter in itself you know to uh, uh, to do that but i have seen uh, have seen the air combat ladder uh, on other squadrons just never um never got into it uh, myself On the f4 i wasn't i wasn't really that good at i'd have been at the bottom of the bottom of the ladder uh, most of my time on on my first squadron because we had some superstar pilots so we really did
0: i was going to ask you what what made those superstar pilots so good what were the qualities you you're very um open and honest about you know, going through this and this being an experience and building confidence, building maturity, building experience, building capability, uh, as you go through this journey that you're on. But notwithstanding experience, what were the qualities that those people had that you observed that that uh, you felt were contributing factors to their success?
1: I think overall, compared to uh, compared to me and my um, at the start of my phantom time, is that. Um, this is going to sound uh, wrong, but just the fact that they had many more hours on the aeroplane. Those many more hours on the aeroplane, hours are just a number in a logbook. Okay. Uh, if people go, Oh, I've got 5,000 hours. Uh, and you wouldn't trust them to drive you home, you know, because they're, they're, it's what you take out of those 5,000 hours is the important thing. So the hours themselves are not important, but those people that had those hours. That were contemporaries of mine, maybe two years ahead of me or something. So I, I would look on them as my generation. The reason they were so much better was because they had that confidence and they knew what they could do with the aeroplane and not depart it. Whereas I was still feeling my way. I think uh, uh, with that, there were some guys who had two thousand hours on the aeroplane that had um, they had feel and touch that I could only have a dream about. Um, you know, in the future, but they, but some of them didn't have the they didn't have the raw aggression that I think I I had when I got in the in the cockpit that I, I had a because I struggled in flying training uh, early doors and, you know, I failed a couple of trips uh, along the way. I, I think I had this true drive and enthusiasm and and uh, that I was going to make it come hell or high water. This is this is what uh, what my dream was and I was going to I was going to do it. And so I'd worked I'd, I worked really, really hard to to get where I was. Now, that gave me uh, that gave me an an edge over some people because I I truly thought that I wanted it more than some other people. And some of the guys who were older, had lots of hours on the airplane, had seen it all before they they relied on their handling and their experience. And and it's not just that Uh, um, air combat is not just that it's uh, it's. It's, it's a mindset thing. It's a, it's what have you got in your heart? What How much do you really want to get one kill on this trip where we do four fights? And I would throw everything into the first fight. I would cheat if I could. I would throw everything in because if you win the first fight, nothing else matters on the trip. Uh, you can beat me up four times after that. Don't care. You died on the first fight, I didn't. That's the only one that that, uh, that counts. Turn myself inside out on this thing, uh, try stupid, um, almost like deception type stuff against people who were much more experienced than me, but in the same aeroplane. I'd try anything that I could uh, to do it. And do you know what? The NAVs lapped it up. Mm. And I was always amazed that um, NAVs got so much into air combat as much as the pilots did um, because they, they, you know if they get shot down the bullets are hitting them first they're going through their bodies before they hit mine so why wouldn't they be uh, as uh, as into it as uh, as me but i i had to overcome the fact that there were a lot of people out there that were much better at handling the airplane than me therefore you know i put more into the maneuvers the thought of what we're going to do at the merge um and how do i how do i offset offset it if i'm leading the air the um the trip uh, i can i can manipulate stuff so that i'm coming out of the sun which makes it harder for them to see me or i come into the sun so that when we merge and cross um if i climb up into the sun they might lose tally early in the uh in the fight and then it's uh, i've got all the advantage so i play around with all sorts of stuff like that when i was when i was leading a trip and i would think about all of that um, wider ranging stuff rather than just the pure handling of the aeroplane which I think a few guys uh, uh, relied upon.
0: The the Phantom is infamous of course for its adverse yaw and um, I, I, it was interesting hearing you describe how you would sort of pre-visualize what you were going to do. Did that include you know how far the stick was going to come back into your lap at you know, a certain point, you know, if you're fast, can you pull it all the way back into your lap? If you're slow, what to what degree did you sort of chair fly or, or sort of mentally fly these sorts of things beforehand?
1: So when I did armchair flying, uh, when I was learning air combat, I did a lot of armchair flying on it. So we, we're taught set-piece manoeuvres, high-speed yo-yos, low-speed yo-yos, rolling and flat scissors and and stuff like that, and the defensive manoeuvres to those. Uh, so I do a lot of armchair flying uh, on that don't remember doing um, a whole lot of it on the Phantom, apart from a bit on the OCU when we were taught high and low, high and low yo-yo and lag pursuit role as a, as a set piece and a guns jink. Um, but uh, when it came to just uh, a bit of 1v1 on the, on the squadron, um, I, d- I didn't once think, um, you know, I'm... I, I don't have the imagination to visualize properly. I, I I don't think anyway, but I never once thought I'll be pulling the stick back, this is what it will feel like, you know. I can smell the uh the rubber of the oxygen mask and the uh and the oil leak that no doubt we'll have in uh, in this trip. Uh I couldn't do that, uh, that stuff, but I would um I would definitely think about what maneuver I would uh, I would try and uh, try and pull. Uh, whether I, I was a big I, I was a big um advocate of using the vertical you know a 3d fight rather than uh, the americans uh, i think when they teach air combat are a little bit more stayed in their um uh turning circles and uh, you know what uh, what's the best speed at the merge to fly your best rate of turn i never did that and actually i don't think we really taught air combat like that in the royal air force uh, we taught uh, basically fly the hardest that you can Uh, within the limits of your aeroplane, sometimes just outside the limits of your aeroplane, but look out of the window and fly the picture that you see. And we taught people to recognise the picture of the fight. So uh, your whole world in the fight is the bandit and the ground. Uh, So an awareness of where you are above the ground, because that's all the potential energy you've got, awareness of your speed. But what is the bandit doing? You can fly the most accurate aeroplane, if uh, you like, in the world in air combat but if the bandit doesn't want to play that way then it it, it was meaningless so i was always uh, taught to be looking out of the window looking at the bandit what's his nose nice position what's he doing here what's he doing there choose the appropriate maneuver that works at that point which is what you do when you first learn air combat and then it becomes a much more i believe uh, a freestyle um uh, freestyle uh uh setup now, th- I, think, um, I think Typhoon is taught in a, in a very American way, uh, air combat. And I'm sure if any um, Typhoon pilots are massively bored and happen upon uh, this, uh, this interview, they'll be shaking their heads saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, but um, this was a kind of different era. And, and that approach worked, uh, worked for me and worked for a lot of my contemporaries as well.
0: Is is there an element of risk aversion behind those differences, do you think, at that time? Um, and The other thing I was thinking while you were describing that was, was whether or not the American approach to training, where there's probably a greater number of people going through the pipeline, um, you know, sort of picking some metrics and saying, here's your corner velocity, do that, do that, you know, rather than it being, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but was the RAF training, because it was a smaller number of people going through a, a tighter process perhaps, um, able to I, to impart that kind of sort of field based training. I think when we
1: went through training, you know, that there was a lot of people going through training. It was a bit of a sausage machine, but um, bottom line is when you do a 1v1, there's you and another aeroplane. You might have an instructor in the back. So it um, doesn't matter how many people are going through training that year. Um, it, it's all about that 45 minutes of your life. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm not sure it was a numbers game with the uh, with the Americans. All I would say is, um, and this will sound quite uh, disparaging, but um, when I went to the states, um, it was a mu- it was that much more inflexible numbers approach. The Marine Corps were much better than the U.S. Navy, and uh, the U.S. Navy were much better uh, than the uh, U.S. Air Force when it came to flexibility uh, in in fighting. If you flew an F-15, and and like I said, there was a lot of F-15 guys, exchange, RAF exchange guys went to the F-15, came back and ended up teaching combat on the Tornado F-3, and that had gone very numbers-style driven, uh, and that uh, just hung over, I think, into, uh, into Typhoon. I think Typhoon's just one of those aeroplanes that... Um, it, you can look out of the window and and do what you like. You can power your way out of trouble if you if you make a mistake on the on looking at the picture. So um, I'm not sure it was a it was a numbers game, Steve. I might I might be wrong. Uh, maybe their their system was uh, so much sausage machine it was just. we always said the U.S. Air Force uh, system, uh, the U.S. Line systems, produced a wingman at the end of uh, at the end of flying training. We didn't. We produced a pair's lead. Either a at ground attack or in uh, or in air defence, mm. and you came out attack weapons um, scarred for life. I think I've mentioned that already, but um, pretty sharp, sharper than you were going to be up to maybe six months on your first uh, for front line squadron. So we had a different approach to um, to flying training altogether. I think.
0: Mm. I-, I wanted to ask one more question about the sort of within visual range fighting that you did in the f4 when you did that mercedes split then how far away typically would you get a tally on on another f4 you, you've talked about when you you just said when you do air combat you know it's it's sort of where's the bandit where's the ground those are your world you've got two other bandits to find now you presumably have some idea where they are but how easy or difficult was it to get a tally on them um and you know would you would you typically require the aid of the radar in order to do that or you know what, what was it like
1: it depended on the day, you know, so um, we were flying grey phantoms. So normally in the Med, if it was a beautiful uh, uh, blue day, um, if you could hide up in the sun, then that's what you would do. You'd go high to give people a, a problem seeing you uh, uh, tally there. If it was a bit more overcast, the sea was, uh, everybody thinks the, the Med is beautiful and blue. Um, on an overcast day, it's grey, perfect place to put a uh, to put a grey phantom. So that's why, if you're leading the Mercedes, to tell you the truth, even if you're not leading the Mercedes split, you turn in early anyway uh, before the uh, uh, turn-in for combat uh, uh, goes. Uh, and then, I, I mean, the nav—we're talking short-range radar work here. This is where the navs really earn their uh, earn their cash. I would uh, I would turn one particular way in order to get tally on one particular guy, and then I would hope the nav would be looking for the other guy on the on the radar to give me. Situational awareness bottom line is we're all got to go through the center point or within five miles of it and if we all decide that we're going to get live straight away we're all going to arrive there and it'd be like a knife fight in a telephone box getting tally is not going to be your problem separating from the fight to use weapons is going to be the uh it's going to be the problem so i would expect um on a uh you know normal kind of uh kind of day maybe a bit of white cloud and and some sunshine I would hope to get Tally on an F4 8 to 10 miles. Uh, that's when my eyesight was, uh, uh, was at its best. Um, I would get Tally on an F4F, uh, so the German F4s, at 15 miles uh, because they smoked like the devil himself. And uh, I once got Tally on an F104 at 27 miles. Uh, F104 is that big when you're standing next to it. Uh but uh, I just got tally on this smoke trail at twenty-seven uh, miles. What they were supposed to do was the it was the Italians that were were flying them out of this place, Decimamano. And uh what you're supposed to do is light the afterburner to clean up the smoke. As soon as the burner goes in, there's no smoke. Um and so, and then at 10 miles, take it out of burner to cool off your engines, otherwise you get shot in the face by a a, a nine lima uh heat seeker. Uh but these Italian uh, guys. If they put the afterburner in, um, starting at 50 miles away, by the time they got to about 30 miles away from us, uh, they'd be almost doing Mach 2. And uh, they couldn't run the radar in time to get a head on shot if they were doing Mach 2. So they'd just come in smoking like the devil. Their radar was shit anyway. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and uh, and they'd be trying to work this uh, this radar, poor buggers. I mean, they, they were working like one arm paper hangers. They always got shot to shit uh, pre merge, and then they'd always go through the merge at about one point eight, and and bugger off back to Dechi because they were out of gas. We never got any turning. Uh, I think I turned once uh, with an F one hundred and four and um it was just beautiful to see something that couldn't turn as as tight as us <laughs> and we shot him down almost straight away but good for him for having a go you know it, it i mean it and it looked like this it looked like this just lawn dart thing in the in the sky uh you know no lift at all from those uh, from those wings but good on him for uh, uh, for having a go when the other three in his formation had poked off at 1.8
0: <laughs> you talked in the last episode about your Primary targets in the Germany scenario being Mig twenty three and Su twenty four. I think he said. Did you have a high fast flyer target as well? And would would that sort of F one hundred four Mark II type capability have been useful in training against that? that yeah. Real...
1: So we um, we practiced uh, high level intercepts and supersonic intercepts uh, from from time to time. Uh, we're looking at Mig twenty five, Mig thirty one, Foxbat, and Foxhound. My very first uh, scramble. Uh, on battle flight in Germany, um, I think they identified it as uh, two MiG MiG-25s uh, coming in high level into the German border, uh, you know, towards the inner German border. We were launched, fled um, supersonic to go and intercept these uh, these things. Um, so we did have that um, that capability and that responsibility, but I think everybody knew that. Uh, when the hordes came across the uh, inner German border, it was all going to be avoiding radars at, at, at low level. I, I'm sure they would have done a multifaceted thing at, at, at lots of levels, uh, but uh, uh, we'd have been down there plugging those gaps uh, between the Patriot mezes.
0: Another detachment that you did, um, which is very noteworthy for for a couple of reasons, which maybe you'll, you'll describe, was the Falklands. Um, so you would have been going there eight or nine years after the Falklands War uh, itself. This would have been late 80s. Uh, Falklands was 81, so... 82 Falklands, 82, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. you know, eight, eight or so years. Eight years, remember, yeah. years so. yeah. And uh, I suppose some of the memories would have been fresh in in terms of how that conflict had gone before you talk about the experience of going down there could you give us an, an overview as to what the threat was in terms of argentine capability or intent uh, because it was a small flight wasn't it it was was it you said already 4 aircraft and 5 crews yeah what was the purpose of the detachment and and what were you expecting to potentially face
1: so i think um if we go back uh, i was in lower sixth school at um, in North Yorkshire, and um, our form teacher was a uh, really nice guy, a, a biology teacher, but uh, you know, massively left leaning, as uh, I think lots of activist teachers were in those days. And um, they just uh, they just sunk the Belgrano, and um, he came into uh, into school, apparently bearing in mind, I, my I, I'd already declared I wanted to join the air force as a pilot at, at this point, and was working, you know, towards that. Uh, and he just came in and said the, the whole thing about uh, the torpedoes they used to sink the Belgrano could have built X number of, uh, of schools and and such like that, which, should, you know, is probably not what a teacher should be espousing um, uh, anyway. But especially, you know, if if they were built built the shit schools uh, that anything like the one I was at, you know, be a, an absolute waste of money. Uh, so um so i it, it was kind of in my blood was the falcons i watched it all on tv and and i thought god i'm i'm only a couple of years from from joining up uh with that so by the time i got down there when when phantoms first went into the Falklands, they were flying out of stanley and it was um you know temporary runway and every landing was a cable so it was almost like they were landing on a slightly larger aircraft carrier um by the time i got to the Falklands, we had mount pleasant airfield that had a uh, a runway as, got as long as the hell's bells East Falkland. You know, you could uh, you could land on it and almost take off on it again without turning around. That's how big it appeared to be compared to uh, to Stanley. So we went there. So by the time I got there, it was the four aircraft, uh, two on queue permanently uh, and the other two uh, fly, uh, you know, able to fly in a, in a spare. Um, but plenty of aircraft shelters down there so should times uh, of tension increase plenty of space to uh to resupply uh and bring loads more uh loads more phantoms uh down if that's what they chose to uh to put in there so i think by the time i was there the the idea behind 1435 flight was a detached uh flight down there was um it's a show of force uh, uh sort of thing we were showing the uh the Falkland islanders who truly believed that they were British, um, that the country actually gave a shit uh, about them, and why shouldn't we? You know, they've declared um, they've declared all the time the Falkland Islands is British, the people there identify as British, and therefore they deserve our protection. So, but you can't keep uh, you know two squadrons of uh, fighters down there at infinitum. So it went down to this uh, this four aeroplane. Um, uh, program, um, the threat uh, we figured was uh, you know uh, for us Skyhawk um, would be the air to air threat, uh, the Super 8 on Dart more ground attack uh, or sea attack uh, type thing it was back to the usual thing. Steve, it, it might sound very uh, very arrogant, but uh, again we didn't really rate them uh, as uh, as such. All right. Up to a point, you know, we're 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 aware of what their capabilities are. We're aware that they, you know, on stopwatch, map and compass, they made it all the way from Argentina to uh, a couple of rocks in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and and shot some stuff and and sank some stuff. Um, but um, but there were no phantoms down there uh, at the uh, at the time. Would have been a different story. We can uh, we we had the radar sites there. Uh, we can find them at uh, much greater distance. We can intercept them at a much greater distance, unless they're going to launch the whole of the bloody uh, Argentinian naval wing at us. Um, four Phantoms can pretty much take care of it, and that's that's true. What I what I truly believe, and if um, and it's not like we're going to get caught uh, napping again. There'd be a build up of uh, intelligence there'd be more phantoms uh, down there at the at the start i suppose my uh, uh my arrogant thoughts were that um you know in during the falklands war a load of harrier pilots managed to see off the argentinian uh, aircraft uh, you know so um we, we had phantoms much more capable than uh, than you know the uh, the sea harriers and the harriers that uh, that were down there and we were specialists air to air so um yeah, it was a, you know usual thing. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, um, because uh, we know what we're doing, you know. And uh, we had some good tactics, good SOPs, and uh, and really, uh, you know, capable people. I think a lot of people have been around a long time on this uh, on this phantom. Uh, it was proven, and and we thought we were as well. So I I didn't really see it as a Oh God, we uh, need to be on our guard here, because unless we get caught out, uh, sort of thing.
0: You talked rites of passage earlier when you talk about Cyprus and you know, Chris kebab and and that sort of thing, the animal yeah. house. What rites of passage were there in the Falklands Islands then?
1: Oh dear God! Um, so uh, there was a bar, unofficial bar, uh, which was the uh, fighter bar called the Goose. It was just a couple of rooms knocked together at the uh, in our bit of the um, uh, accommodation. Uh, you only got you only got invited to the goose if you were a good uh, a good guy or girl, you know. And we'd we'd have legendary bloody drinking parties in the goose. Uh, generally, it was always trying to be shut down. So you get some new flipping admin or in who was OC admin who would uh, um, always try and close the unofficial bars, and the goose was always top of their list. The reason they wanted to close the goose was because we never invited them up there because they were all arseholes, you know. So. Um it was only it was only people that never got invited to the goose that wanted to wanted to close the goose. Another rite of passage, though, was a uh, was a flying rite of passage, which was um on the west side of East Falkland. The southwest side is a an area called Laphonia, and it's like a billiard table. It's uh, it's as flat as you can get on a on a rocky island like that. And uh, that was where young pilots went to see how low they dare fly. And um I we launched one day I had a, a newly promoted navigator in the back by promoted I mean he'd been promoted to authorizer we were still both flying officers can you get this flying officer fighter crew he was the duty adult and uh, <clears throat> the other jet went US and we, we were airborne as a singleton and when we were airborne as a singleton in the Falklands, you just raged around as fast as you could and And as low as you uh, as low as you could, and you do all these outrageous fly paths at the radar sites to build a bit of morale and at some of the uh, settlements uh, and such. But uh, one of the things was you go down to Lafonia and see how low you dare go. And um, and he said, right, come on, Tug, let's see how low you can go. And uh, this is a nav, you know, it's just putting his trust in me. I think I set the rad out at 40 feet, and and. Ease myself down, ease myself down, turn around, came around, ease myself down, and the rad out light went off at forty feet, and uh, and I was down there. and I, I was basically just shitting myself, you know. I, I wasn't I wasn't a capable airport uh, um, uh, pilot at that point. I was just not hitting the ground, you know. And um, we kidded ourselves that you know, come the war, when we go across the border, you know, to sweep for the uh, for the uh, bombers. We're going to have to be this low to avoid uh, SAMs and stuff like that. That's that's what the justification we used. But, yeah, I've got to 40 feet, and I, th- I think I pulled up to 80 feet. I thought I was going to have a stinking nosebleed. It just looks so high. And um, and I think um, i think I got uh, – I had this thing in my head that, uh, yeah, I'm okay at uh, kind of 80 feet, and, and you're just not. You know, and we go up and down Falkland Sound and San Carlos Water, at uh, fifty feet or so, with the afterburners in, and because um, uh, we had the big fat Rolls Royce engines, uh, they they sat down by about two degrees. I think they were angled down by about two degrees. Well, you could put the full uh, full afterburner in and get rooster tails up behind the uh, behind the aeroplane in the in the water. So these were the kind of rites of passage that um, uh, that you did in the in the Falklands. Got to one day, I was uh, I was leading a pair of aeroplanes against the Charlie 130 tanker that was down there. We'd tank from it and then do intercepts against it. And um, I think it was about 150 feet. Um, and my my number two flew underneath me, you know, and I, and I thought, my God, we, we've we gone feral here. We, we really have gone feral. And that's why they only sent uh, aviators down there for six weeks at a time. The poor ground crew had four to six months. They'd send the pilots down there and the navigators for six weeks because they didn't want us to get any more feral. I think
0: there was an, an incident there that sort of runs contrary to the spirit of that. Then, that with, with, involved your break shoot, and maybe you'll you'll discuss that in a minute. But but I wondered what was the leadership philosophy around that then so limit the amount of time that guys spend down there that's one thing that they can do but there was no attempt to actually outright ban that kind of flying nobody was saying if we catch you you'll be on the the airplane back and you'll lose your wings or anything like that
1: no, no I mean if you got caught doing outrageous stuff, you'd get a bollock it that was uh, that was it. I mean it wasn't quite the Wild west. I make it sound like it like it, in fact some of the stuff I saw it absolutely was the wild west. take that back it absolutely <laughs> yeah absolutely was so um t- outrageous outrageous low flying and then um uh and then we get a new OC ops had come on uh so uh, down there you had a station commander uh who was a phantom pilot or nav uh you'd have an ocops uh who was a phantom pilot on nav and they would um quite often come over and kick one of the pilots on navs out and and fly with us so there was a a bit of oversight uh some of those uh, pilots were some of the most outrageous ones i think i'd ever seen flying anyway so some of the oversight was uh uh let's say uh flexible at uh, at best and then you get an ocops posted in who everybody hated, and then he would, uh, he would insist on flying with us, and you were always on your best behaviour when, when you knew that guy because rather than be air crew, he had to run the whole of ops, which meant all the air traffic controllers, the uh, fighter controllers and, and stuff like that. And some of those guys came in and thought, well, I've got to be whiter than white and stuff. And the easiest target was to just slag off uh, the, the Phantom crews down there, even though they were Phantom uh, themselves. Well, all that happened was they got a miserable, uh, bloody reception when they came over to fly with us. You know, they thought they were joining in with 1435. They were part of uh, rah, 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 running round the flag boys and all that sort of stuff. And we just treated them as uh, as an outsider, you know, something that we had to put up with, something that was in my airplane. You know, it was that it was that mm. uh, that sort of uh, sort of thing. But if you got caught doing uh, stuff, it depended on who was OCOps and, and the boss at the uh, at the time and and the station commander. Um, I had uh, my first boss in the Falklands. What you have to understand is the squadron leader boss goes down for four months um, to to have some continuity. So he sees pilots and nabs coming in every four to six weeks and, and they change over. And his own personal nav or pilot will change over uh, with that um so about 2 months in the boss generally goes mad um uh, and i mean proper mad they start doing mad uh, mad stuff wandering round aimlessly in the cold outside and and stuff like that and you know real uh, odd odd things uh, and then <clears throat> you'll get one that he'll then frown on you going to the goose you know to the bar well, oh, hold on, you know, last week you were absolutely shit-faced. I put you to bed, you know, <laughs> taking you out of the goose. And then because they've gone mad and they, they maybe they have a flickering career caption coming on that, Jesus, you know, I better, I better knuckle down here and be... Rebe-. It's like a punch-drunk boxer, you know, who fights his hardest on the 12th round, thinking he might just get the points decision when he's been plastered all over the ring for 11 rounds. I think that's what some of those mad bosses uh, uh, did. So the first boss I had down there... We we arrived uh, during his mad period, and um, <clears throat> and he hated us. He hated us because uh, we were Germany, and he was a Lucas uh, guy. And uh, the previous crew that we'd uh, we'd replaced. Oh my God, that that pilot. He was brilliant. I loved him. He was a pilot I I aspired to be like. It was a couple of years ahead of me, uh, and he was he was ultra cool. And I thought if I can get to be as good as him by the end of my tour, I've done all right. Well, they pulled the wings off their aeroplanes, and all the fatigue was being used up. And and the boss was in his mad period, and he was going wibble because uh, you know he had to manage the fatigue. So they they left under a bit of a cloud. We arrived under that cloud and got absolutely nailed by him for. For everything that uh, that we did, and because we were a flying officer crew, I suppose we were easy to um, uh, to be uh, to be picked on. We didn't do ourselves any favors as well. Made a couple of mistakes, you know, that um, that we got bollockings for. That we probably deserved one that we didn't deserve, and you know, and that's uh, that's how it goes: swings and uh, swings and roundabouts. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, what was the original question? If you got caught screwing around. Uh, in the aeroplane, you uh, you got bollocks so, and a couple of mates of mine got sent home. I uh, got sent home for crashing an exec's party, actually. Uh, you know, just completely unrelated to flying. And um, it, it's a, it's a bit mad down there. It's it's not real. And a lot of beens end up down there, getting promoted and going down for a year. And they call themselves the permanent staff, and they think they're going to make a career out of it. When actually, you, you sometimes you just want to say to them in the bar. Do you understand why you've been posted down here for a year you know it's because we couldn't get you any further away you know it's it's 8000 miles away if we'd got you 12000 miles away we would have done you know so you're not going to make a name for yourself uh, uh, down here but but they always uh, they always try to
0: the the incident that I uh, referred to and you just referred to was uh, around your drag chute on landing can you can you yeah. quickly give us a, a summary of what happened
1: yeah god this is going to be like therapy for me uh, Steve. Um, this uh, th- this brought it home to me that not everybody's the same, you know. So we landed, we were a singleton, um, we landed and what we would normally do is we'd get off the runway and then um, um, pop the drag chute so it landed on the taxiway and there'd, there'd be a recovery crew would pick up the uh, parachute and take it back to the squadron. So this particular day we were the only ones there. But we landed in Pretty shit weather, and there was a strong crosswind. And air traffic said you can drop the chute on the um, on the runway. So okay, we got to the end of the runway, we dropped the chute. Now what the navs used to do was they had a mirror up here, and they would look in the mirror, and they could see the chute billowing as the um, uh, as the wind took it away from the uh, from the aeroplane. So um, my backseater called chute gone. Uh, because he couldn't see the chute it looked as though it had gone actually what it had done was it had gone completely across with the crosswind um gone completely across the back of the airplane so he couldn't have seen it maybe if both of us had looked out the right hand side we could have seen the chute billowing that way but that's not something that you would normally check he looked in the mirror shoot gone is what he said so i turned right which is how we were going to get off the uh, the runway and then uh we in fact we were told to drop the chute and then backtrack. We were told we could backtrack on the on the runway rather than use the taxiway. So we turned right and then I just saw this billowing chute. We both saw it still attached to us, didn't know it was attached, but we just thought sort it of blown up on the on the runway. And I ran over it. Um and I just thought, oh, what, what should it? and just kept powering on. It got wrapped around the main wheel and then just locked. So the main wheel got wrapped around all the strops and uh, and stuff and we came to a juggling halt on the runway called to air traffic control we were stuck um you know um had to shut down on the runway fire crews came out with the ground crew cut the chute out we're standing there in the in the cold weather thinking oh god this is embarrassing uh, uh sort of thing and and that was that expecting that we get massively bantered uh, uh for this well, we got back to uh, the queue shed where we worked out of and the other cr- crew that were on queue said, uh, boss wants to see you up in his office. And that was a walk across the windswept bloody taxiway, you know. So we, we walked across still in our flying kit and he gave us this bloody stand up bollocking uh, about unprofessionalism and, and typical Germany, this, this and this. And he obviously had a bit of an axe to grind. The bottom line is I wrapped the drag chute around the bloody main wheel. I told him what the circumstances were. I thought that they were, they were mitigating circumstances. And then he said this. So his personal pilot was the duty uh, aircraft officer in the tower. And uh, he said, well, I've just spoken to such and such, a guy I now have, have called Snitcher forever, uh, evermore. Uh, he said, Snitcher called me and said that you were, uh, you deliberately drove over your own chute. And it, and it was, and I said, boss, why, why would we do that? Yeah, I don't know, t- typical Germany, you know, and then he went into a mad uh, kind of rant uh, sort of thing. So I thought, well, we did screw up here, but there are circumstances why we screwed up. We, we didn't, it, you make it sound like we deliberately drove over our own chute, which is what the guy in the tower was telling him. And, uh, and from then I just thought, oh, my God, this is the first time another phantom guy has knifed me in the back. OK, I don't I, I've I've had this all all through my life. I can't stand it when somebody nice me in the back, come up to my front and punch me in the face with something and I can deal with it. But I couldn't deal with that. And we still had another two weeks on this debt with these two idiots. And um and it was it was an uncomfortable situation where, my God, this guy's got it in for us what what do we what do we do well what we do is we we wait until we can get our revenge um because there's one thing that fighter crews do exceptionally well it is hold the grudge and i, I can hold a grudge for 30 40 years if i need to but i will get satisfaction and we got satisfaction on the very next um i think two trips time we flew against that crew and absolutely uh, cheated like crazy and absolutely beat them up and uh, and then uh took a kind of quiet smug attitude in the um uh in the debrief didn't lord it over them but they knew they just knew and um and it was it was an unpleasant uh situation to be in but we did what we always do we um we knuckled down and we got our revenge and it and it was sweet as anything
0: did, did I, told, jam- I told
1: you that was therapy didn't i look at that i feel i feel elated it's like something's been lifted off my shoulders.
0: You, you look years, years younger now as well.
1: Oh, thanks very much, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think the Germany thing was a, was a little bit of a theme in our last conversation? And you're going to talk a little bit about your experiences going back to the UK when they called, they the Closed World and Wrath and your squadron there. You went to your second Phantom Squadron that was in the UK. But um, do you think that Germany was behind the snitching? Do you think uh, a sense of um jealousy envy was behind that or do you think that person
1: i don't know i, don't, I mean he had nothing to be jealous of he was uh he, he had maybe two tours on me you know he was he was a very very experienced uh guy had nothing to be uh jealous of that the pilot who who uh dobbed us in uh he hadn't been to germany though um so um so therefore, in our eyes, he was crap. You know, that's, uh, that's just how we uh, uh, how we were. Uh, but it, it wasn't as bad as <clears throat> it wasn't as bad as that. I joke about it. I joke about it now. Um, that that whole Germany versus uh, versus UK thing. I don't know what his I don't know what his deal was. Maybe we were just the flying officer crew, and they expected us to screw up, and and we were easy easy pickings. Or maybe I look at it from my biased point of view. Maybe I did deserve a massive bollocking for it, Steve. Who knows? It's just at the time, I thought it was—I uh, thought it was a bit of—it uh, was a bit unfair, and I wasn't—I wasn't, I wasn't going to put up with it. Um, looking back on it, I can i still can't even see why you would justify dobbing somebody in like that, mm. or how you could justify it.
0: But you talk uh, a little later in your book, and um, again, if you're listening at home and you haven't already bought it, buy it read it it's fantastic but but you do and there's lots that we're not talking about so there's a reason to go and buy it you're not going to get all the stories on this podcast but that you talk about uh tug when you go back to uh, is it 43 squadron you went
1: to uh 56, 56. went to at, uh, at Wattisham. yeah
0: I, I got both numbers wrong that's embarrassing have,
1: that's you know? all right we didn't rate either of them anyway so uh, <laughs> you could have said um 21 squadron you know who cares
0: there was there's some reference there about I, I love the charming introduction that you made to the the squadron boss um about you know sort of reporting for duty but but then it sort of seems that it turned sour a little bit but was that about Germany was that about just a, a new influx of guys who were more capable in the squadron and was that just about doing things differently was it about cliques? What,
1: what yeah don't get me wrong I didn't think I was more capable than anybody um, when I went to 56 uh, again there were a lot of superstars on uh, on 56. And overall, it was a great squadron, and it was a really good uh, good time. I um, I arrived and did a bit of Battle of Britain stuff with the uh, with the boss. I didn't know the boss from uh, from Adam. We'd had a brilliant uh, second boss on ninety two Squadron, and I was gutted that uh, I wasn't going to be flying for him again. Went in and uh, you know flashed up a salute, and uh, I actually said to him permission to join your squadron, sir, uh, which I thought was very Battle of Britain his face broke into a massive grin and he said permission granted and i said i'm tug wilson and he said well i'm uh and told me his name and uh and that started a lifelong friendship that handshake started a lifelong friendship uh with that uh with that boss and and he went on to uh to air rank and i served under him again in the, a ground tour in saudi arabia it was my last tour in the air force and i would have uh i would have um I would have walking over broken glass for that, uh, for that guy. Um, uh, one of the flight commanders was mad, but good mad. Um, and he was my flight commander. And uh, of uh, it, again, really nice uh, nice guy. Um, and then I went in to meet uh, uh, the rest of the guys on the squadron. Seven of us moved back from Wildenrath at the same time, from 92 Squadron. Four went to 74 at Wattisham and three of us went to 56. I was the first to arrive out of all seven. And, um, and met a load of guys on 56. Some I'd been through officer training with uh, some i had been through flying training with and all good. And then um, two guys uh, said hello to two guys. And one of them, uh, one of them said, um, when's Bobby pitching? up?" Bobby was one of my favorite nabs on, uh, on 92. That's not his real name, but, um, uh, and I said, oh, I think he's, uh, he's moving into a quarter beer in a couple of weeks. And they said, well, tell him not to bother unpacking because uh, we're going to chop him. And these were two UK guys who'd never been to Germany, uh, were pairs leaders, whereas we were, I said last time, we were eight ship leaders, 16 ship leaders on cap uh, and such. And these two also rounds, as 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 I uh, viewed them, reckoned they were going to chop one of my best mates. And it, and it just turned a little bit sour uh, for me. And then over time, as um, as the two guys joined me on 56 Squadron, um, we'd, we'd go to the bar uh, quite regularly and and just kind of spout off about, yeah, what happened to you today? And it's human nature that you rec- you remember all the bad things, all the bad things are the markers in your life. It's just a human nature thing. Um, and, and those are the things that stick out for me. But out of, 56 was a huge squadron and lots and lots of people on there out of uh i don't know maybe there were let's say there were 40 aircrew on 56 i don't know if it was that or not uh there were probably six arseholes. and um and the rest were either really great guys or uh you know fair to middling and and i enjoyed flying with uh, uh with nearly everybody mm. on that squadron but i only you, you, the markers are the bad uh are the bad things <clears throat> and those are the things we need to talk about in order to Release the stress that um, uh, that that those minor bad things uh, uh, bring. Unfortunately, we went on a um, we went on a joint maritime exercise deployed to Lucas, and um, it seemed that all six of those assholes were on that debt. It's the worst debt I've ever been on, and uh, and that was that was pretty brutal. That uh, that detachment, and I, I had to I had to uh, take action. Uh, on that detachment, with uh, with a couple of those, uh, with a couple of those guys, and then it was done, and and that was that. They probably don't even remember that. It it, it was no nothing to them, uh, but it was everything uh, to uh, uh, to me. And and sticking up for the people that I, I were my best mates, you know. So um, yeah, don't get me wrong. Uh, I had a great boss, great flight commander, great time. Um, had. Probably the best uh, Mamanu debt I've ever had in my life with fifty-six squadron. Um, so going away with a squadron that you know some people I don't particularly like, and um, and actually loving it. I had an absolutely uh, almost died in a mid-air collision, uh, almost a mid-air collision sort of thing, um, and uh, and did the usual thing of um, cheating death by getting shit-faced. And what what a brilliant way to. Uh, to live your life on a on a fighter squadron. So yeah, 56, really good time. Not as good as 92, but um, there was nobody on 92 I really fell out with. Um, and yeah, you know, it it was it was what it was. Uh, and I, I the other thing with 56 was great history. I, I was a history nerd. Always looked into who'd been on the squadron before me, whose boots I have to walk in, what do I have to live up to. You know, they had Albert Ball. Uh, that is um dress uniform in a glass cabinet in the uh in the crew room wow. now to a, a history nerd like me uh i do you know it was almost like i could have licked the glass of that cabinet every morning it was so special to have albert vall vc's uh, uh uniform in there and all sorts of other uh, great stuff they've got a great badge and a great motto uh as well and i was always into badges and mottos and and you know i i did i i did love it um i didn't love it um at the end because uh, we used to drive past the phantom graveyard every day to go to work and they were breaking up all the phantoms as it went out of service and that was uh, that was pretty uh, uh pretty tough but you know
0: i wanted to if if you're okay talking about it if not we'll move on but i wanted to because you were at 56 when you learned of two friends dying in the Falklands. Um, yeah, would you? Are you able to talk about that? Not, I mean, not so much around what happened, but as you know, what your reaction to it. One thing that's sort of missing in, I guess, your book—not missing because that sounds like you—you you know, it's incomplete or isn't—it's—it's it's not satisfactory. But it's not there at least is uh, sort of a, any sort of introspection around mortality, and it's a common question I ask guys who did your job whether or not. Uh, and and it's interesting in the first interview you, you talked about being offended that somebody would say, well, you're all going to get watered if, if the Russians yeah. come over. It's like, fuck you, no, we're yeah. not. Um, but, and you've talked a lot about not thinking about too deeply about, you know, getting shot down other than it being a bruised ego from, from a training point of view. Yeah. But did, did, was that the first loss of friends that you had experienced? Um, did, did it bring home to you that it could have been you? Do you start as you become mature and you become older, do you start thinking about your mortality uh, does it have an impact on the way that you fly? What, how do you handle that experience, and, and what did you feel about it?
1: Yeah, so I think um, I think we all had a sense of um, um, like we were indestructible. Um, it wasn't until years later, when I they discovered this heart condition that grounded me, that I found out I wasn't indestructible. Up to that point, I pretty much thought I was. Uh, we, whenever we looked at accident reports, quite often you would read an accident report, go idiot, you know, chuck it on the, uh, the table and say, that'll never happen to me. Uh, you would pick out some positive things from accident reports as, uh, as well. But a number of people, um, a number of people I knew died. Some of them died when I was in flying training. I th- flying training was a, a pretty desperate Time, maybe a ten to fifteen percent chance somebody on your course would die uh, through the whole of flying training, including OCU. Uh, people have gone through training with it, died on uh, Buccaneers, flown into the sea. Um, a couple of guys, uh, um, yeah, one guy had died in a Hawk at uh, TAP Weapons, and 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 it, it was around us, but this was the closest um, I'd I'd come to it. So. The pilot had gone through training two courses after me at Valley. I met him at Valley, and he was, he was legendary. Uh, he was a young guy, but um, he, his personality was 100 times the, uh, the size of his body. And he was quite a big guy as, uh, as well, perfect for the Phantom, perfect personality for the Phantom. The navigator was uh, much more experienced, and he'd been one of the staff navigators at TAC Weapons. So each attack weapon squadron had a couple of staff navs, and they'd sometimes fly with the students to say, "Hey, this is what it's like flying in twin seat, you know, and, uh, and such." And uh, they always did the program as well, and they were the student friend. So those two guys were student friend, whereas a lot of the instructors were were just bastards uh, uh, to us so the the nabs would look after you put an arm around you and, and that so it was one of those guys who went in 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 the back of the uh, the aeroplane i was station duty officer at uh, wattisham and uh, and it said uh was i a flight left i might have been flight lieutenant but would the station duty officer i think it was uh, contact um uh meet uh contact oc admin so uh, it's never good when people tanner you. So I just thought, oh, God, I'm in the shit about something here. Rang up, OOC oh, admin will meet you in the, the anti-run in the mess now. Got to the mess and I sat down and he said, there's been a fatal accident in the Falklands. And my heart just, just sank it, because, you know, not there's been an accident, there's been a fatal accident. And I said, uh, who was it? And this is what he said. And I know what he was trying to say, but it, it was just wrong. And he said, it's OK, it's a Germany crew. So it was two of the guys from Nineteen Squadron who were still out there, and um, God, I could have punched him in the face. I know what he was trying to say, but you know, he, and he didn't know I'd just come from Germany and and whatnot. But for goodness' sake, have some mouse. you know. This is a brotherhood across the whole of the fleet. You know, we might slag off other squadrons, but but we're all in this together. And then he told me who it was, and uh, and I, I just I just went I shuddered, you know. And then um, I was SDO. Uh, Now, what normally happens is so I have to stay sober all night because I'm on I'm on duty. What normally happens is after people die on the squadron, um, we go to the bar and get shit faced that night. We're very good at dealing with the short, sharp shot, very poor at doing uh, the post-traumatic stress stuff uh, traditionally. So um, I, I went to the bar in Blues. As I walked in, one of the admin, young admin officers walked up to me and said, I'll take that tug. And I went. What he said? "Uh, I've just talked to, and he pointed to one of the nabs that I used to fly with. He told me your SDO, and would I do it for you? And I went, God, that's but I'll I'll take it off you another night. He said, you don't need to worry about it. Gave him uh, the SDOs bag, went back to my room and got a uh, flying suit on, and went got absolutely shit faced. Um, So we have this kind of wake uh, uh, thing, and um, it's you can do what you like in the bar. You can uh, you can. Cry your eyes out, which I think I did that night. Uh, You can get shit-faced, which I absolutely did. You can sing dirty songs, which, again, I did. Um, And we can, you can say anything you like, and it stays in the bar. And one of the most beautiful traditions that we have is all of the drinks are bought on the bar books of the two guys that have died. So you, you drink to absolute destruction. And then it's a beautiful tradition that the mess writes off those bar books uh, mm-hmm. afterwards. So the mess basically pays for the um, uh, for the drinks, and it's just a lovely thing that um, uh, that happens. So I got put to bed at um, because I was reasonably close to the pilot. Uh, I got put to bed, I think, about five thirty in the morning, and, and maybe uh, somebody sat up with me on uh, vomit watch because that's what we did with uh, uh, with our. With our buddies, I got up at four thirty in the afternoon, maybe threw some food down my neck, and um, and I flew the next day at uh, eight thirty in the morning, because you've had your whining, you've had your crying, uh, we've done our period of mourning. Okay, let's go fly aeroplanes, and nobody really dealt with the post traumatic stress stuff. There was then a memorial service um, months later, I think, at uh, over at Wildenrath. And um, the air force put on a Charlie 130 um, out of Watisham. We all piled on there in our new in our number one uniforms, wives as uh, uh, as well for those that were married. They flew us to Wildenrath. We went to the uh, memorial service. No coffins because they never found the uh, bodies. Uh, the pilot's wife was pregnant, um, and she walked in, and um, I swear to God, we uh, everybody just burst into tears. Uh, every memorial service I've been to one of my favorite hymns is I vow to thee my country I think is a very military uh, duty style uh, style hymn and um, I can't I can't sing it still can't sing it now because it's been at every memorial service that I've been to and there's a line in it um, oh god I can't even remember it uh, now word for word but uh, um, it, it's about laying your life down lays uh, lay a, uh, your life down on the cross uh, uh, sort of uh, thing uh, to pay your duty and i can't get past that line because so I, I start crying every uh, every time so it has had an effect and it does have an effect on you but as far as me facing my own mortality no that took a serious heart condition uh, before i even considered uh, considered that mm. Uh, oh, lays upon the altar. The uh, is the is the uh, the line from my vow to thee, my country. That's the one that gets me going. But yeah, I, I never once thought about my mortality.
0: Kind of another personal question. Um, and we can sort of move on again. You know, if you don't want to talk about it. But, but at that point, were you married? Were you building building a family? Was, was there any pressure externally to you? To say actually i'm worried about it. you know Somebody was there somebody else saying i'm worried about it were you having to start to think more about other people or were you able to st- no. st- solely fo- focus on yourself
1: no i was uh, i was single i had a girlfriend at the time we ended up getting married um uh later on down the line towards the uh last couple of months of my time on the phantom uh we got uh, uh we got married but at that point i was i was still single yeah i was in a committed uh, relationship but um that, this is going to make me sound like I'm uh, some kind of robot, or, or you know, uh, died through the uh, through the wool uh, uh, military type uh, type thing. It's not cliche to think that to say that there are the two separate uh, sort of lives that uh, that you lead. You lead a normal domestic life that um, you do normal things in. Uh, with your buddies with your uh, partners girlfriends or or whatever and then uh, you lead your proper life uh, which is the brotherhood on the squadron and the connection that you have with the airplane and i'm sure lots of people uh, pilots will look at this and be ah it's just bullshit we're not we're not as cut and dried as that i was i was absolutely cut and dried um red and yellow are my colors that's what's in me my blood is red and yellow uh, it was red and white when I was on 56 Squadron, and uh, that was my life, and that was my brotherhood and my family, uh, and the rest of it was a support to that uh, to that function. So I had no pressure. My family, you know, uh, mum and dad, uh, they they revelled in everything that uh, that I did. I think they were more bothered, Steve, about the uh, terrorist attacks from the IRA uh, than they were whether I was. Uh, I, I don't think they could comprehend. Uh, that I was going to um, uh, have a problem in an aeroplane or anything like that, but there again, neither could I. I couldn't comprehend that I was going to uh, die in an aeroplane, and I didn't. You know, so um, it, I don't. I didn't feel any undue pressure that changed the way I approached flying the aeroplane or 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 my life. If I had, I wouldn't have drunk half of the booze that I'd uh, that I'd drunk. I wouldn't have flown hungover. You know, it, it it's that. Uh, uh, the life was everything and um and I gave everything to that uh to that life and if stuff got in the way then it took it it absolutely took a back seat to that
0: we're drawing to a close here but I, I wanted to just ask two more questions and um the first is uh to to sort of ask you how you felt or how you approached the end of your time on the Phantom. You've already talked to driving past those graveyards at Waddingham. The RF was clear; it was getting rid of the aeroplane. Um, what were the emotions, and you know, how did you how did you handle the process of bidding the aeroplane farewell?
1: Uh, I hated it. I, d- I, I did. It. I, I managed to leave the uh, the Phantom maybe four months before its ultimate demise. Uh, I missed out on some outrageous fly pasts and uh, parties, but uh, I took a, um, I took an early retirement from it to get uh, a golden opportunity, and that was to become a TAC weapons instructor myself at the newly formed uh, unit, uh, TAC weapons unit up at, uh, up at Valley. Um, I did that because I didn't want to go to the Tornado F3 sim for two years and then fly the Tornado F3, which is what was happening to a lot of uh, Phantom guys that was on the cards so um i thought why, why not go and try and teach some uh, some stuff um it always matures you as an aviator when you when you teach and it absolutely did but it was also my best chance of getting an exchange tour. a lot of exchanges were going from tac weapons slots so that's what i did i thought um i'll i'll take a bit of pain and live at valley and um because uh, it's my best shot of a of an exchange and if it happens it happens if it doesn't well so be it. at least tac weapons is a good is a good job uh, anyway, so um, so i drive past the, uh, the graveyard. We'd see these cranes bashing these aeroplanes to bits. Uh, all of the stick tops were sawn off and given to bloody engineering officers and senior officers and whatnot. People had never flown the aeroplane, got stick tops on plinths and stuff. We got nothing uh, uh, from it, you know. Um, other than, you see, I, I always, always say to people uh, now, uh, when i talk to we go to phantom reunions and i was at uh, 92 squadron union not so long ago and um and we said you know there's people that have flown it and 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 the rest can dream because uh, there was something special about it uh, there really was and so what if i didn't get a stick top or a nose wheel or a even a even a remove before flight thing uh, from that graveyard it doesn't matter because what i've got is all in here and in here and and nobody but nobody can ever take that uh, ever take that away from me those memories and those uh, those feelings and um i it, it kills me to this day you know we were we were we were at the top of our game and uh, we had an aeroplane that still had plenty of life left in it and and it uh, yeah what 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 the hell were they thinking um take the stinking harrier out of service or the jaguar or something that nobody really cares about you know but give us give us this aeroplane for until it finally decides when it decides it's had enough and rolls over and croaks don't take it away from the aeroplane itself you know and I said to you last time, I think I gave this thing a bit of life. It didn't have life, but I, but I gave it that 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 life. I truly believed it was a a living, breathing, uh, breathing thing. And to uh, and to kill that was just um, just unacceptable. Um, and and it it pains me to uh, to this day. If I could have one more trip in an aeroplane, it would be in a Phantom uh, with my one of my favourite nabs in the uh, in the back. That that's that's how much it. It got under my uh, got under my skin, and I, I've said, "Turn me into the person that I uh, I am today. I'm a much better person because of that that aeroplane behind you."
0: Tug, finish off then with a story for us. Tell us about irreverence and um, how how you guys as a as a as a collective treated senior officers that you you didn't necessarily respect.
1: Steve, this is like a setup, isn't it? Look at that. You're just leading me down a path. Best straight one I've ever had. Uh, yeah, so um, we were uh, we were in Germany. Um, I'd been there a, 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 a little while by this time, and we we loved ourselves and we, we were everything to uh, to each other. So it was a dining in night, and uh, and it was a stag night. So just uh, just serving people, no partners or anything like that. Uh, towards the end of uh, the time on the Phantom, we knew when our end date was on 92 we knew we were going to be going back to Watersham for a little bit and and there was an end date for the uh, for the phantom now there was a um uh, a guy um i call him uh, he's called Barry Hallcock in the uh, in the book he's quite a famous uh, phantom driver um famous for uh, something that he did while he was uh, was in the air force based around uh, family history i think it was uh, by the by, um, he's one of the most boring people I think I've ever uh, come across in uh, in my life. And you wonder how how the hell he survived on a on a phantom squad. He must have had a miserable time of it because he would have been the banter punch bag. Um, and I think he was one of those guys. They they kept promoting him in the in the vain hope they could get rid of him off the squadron. And then all of a sudden he ends up at senior bloody rank. And he ended up as our station commander at Watisham. But at the time, he was Wing Commander Air Defence at uh, some headquarters in, in Germany. Um, it was a kind of a liaison uh, job, but a Wing Commander job nonetheless. Um, anyway, he um, he demanded uh, to be dined out from Wildenrath. Now, we, I, I knew him in passing. I didn't really know him from Adam, you know. There's this guy being dined out at, at our fighter base. How dare he just, you know demand that, that this would happen anyway so uh oc ops at the time was a was a backseater and he'd served with this uh, uh with this guy and um and he he, he was trying to uh, he was trying to um uh explain why this guy had the nickname that he had and he had a nickname uh these are all made up but uh, it's very close to the truth he had a nickname called Mozzie. Because he when he spoke, he spoke quite quickly. when he answered his phone, he when he was a squadron leader, he would say, "This is uh, squadron leader Holcock, but he would say it so quickly. the first bit the squadron leader would come out like that." Um, and so he was known as mozzie because he sounded like a uh, a mosquito. So that's the story that Osiops is trying to say. Now I've got to say that we are absolutely fueled to the max at this point. You know we've toasted the queen and it, it was it was almost as bad as people were necking the port out of the decanter you know uh, rather than pouring the glass that's how steamed we all were and there were a lot of junior officers a lot of flying officers and uh, and such and so and we're just getting restless and and when air crew are not stimulated we become disruptive it's it's a it's a pathological problem that uh, that we have so there were all sorts there was all sorts of banter flying around and it was all a bit rowdy oseops gets up starts to uh introduce this guy and we know it's going to be a dreadful speech and, and whatnot so uh, so he said um so uh, I'd like to introduce now Wing Commander Hawcock. Uh, uh, now, he's been known as many names uh, during his time in the Air Force, and everybody's going, yeah, you know, and, and and stuff like that. So all getting out of hand. He said, um, and he's trying to say, but the one he's known as is, uh, is Mozzie, he said, but the one that we all know and love him as is and one of the junior navs on 19 Squadron at the top of his voice uh, shouted, Barry Smallcock, uh, like that, and we absolutely wet ourselves. The whole place collapsed, and uh, as I mean, it was, we were just howling at this. And Osiops uh, just looked at him with a face like thunder, because Osiops is the president of the mess committee, and this whole thing's getting out of hand. He's lost control. He just looks at this guy and he goes out like that. And and the whole place went quiet, and we, we were just sniggering. And he went out. It's the first time I've seen somebody thrown out of a uh, of a dining in night. And he got up and walked out with the saddest look on his uh, on his face. And we just gave him a round of applause and cheered him as he walked out. And you know what? Normally, uh, if if you've been sent out of a dining in night, that's it. It's disgraceful like being sent off. You would go straight to bed, and and that would be that. This guy waited in the bar for an hour and a half Wait, just waited there drinking on his own in the bar while, while this, oh my god the most boring man in NATO then <laughs> gave us the state of the nation briefing basically a 45 minute speech on what a great um, future the phantom had because we were going to sell them to the Greeks like we gave a shit you know and uh, anyway couldn't get to the end of this uh, speech fast enough and, um, and it was bang bang uh, things over we raced to the bar and there was uh there was this guy i mean he was he was he could barely stand up because he'd just been <laughs> drinking on his own drowning his sorrows and and he was he was he was a he was a hero for uh for the rest of the night you know just uh don't come don't come here demanding to be dined out and then bore the crap out of us mate you know uh yeah great uh uh great times uh, uh, <laughs> thank, you.
0: thank you for sharing that um and for sharing that's my favorite story from the I'm whole what, you're
1: not you're not going to get that in a normal
0: aviation <laughs> memoir are you very <laughs> Smallcock. all right okay <laughs> tug uh thank you so much for uh coming on the channel again uh two more hours of your time really appreciate it it's been uh really fascinating to get uh a perspective i don't think that you hear very often. Uh certainly not on my channel. I'm not not deliberately, uh, but just sort of happenstance. I'm quite focused on the US side of things. That's where I know the most people, and so therefore cool. that's where I have the most conversations. And I've always found it tricky to get RAF guys to come and talk to me. I don't know, maybe I, uh, maybe I need to work harder at that. And if the standard of your delivery is anything to go by, then I definitely should work harder at bringing more it RAF must, guys must on. must be a personality issue. It must be. It? I is, that, say, is that what it is? Yeah. They, they haven't heard about me enough over there. That's yeah, why they talk yeah. to me. Everyone yeah. here knows I'm a dick. So, um, But it, it has been great. And, and maybe um, you'll make a, a pledge to come on and talk about your time on The Hornet that would be cool oh god you, um... i'd love
1: to I, I think you can tell I, I i i've really enjoyed it uh steve okay. you've got such an easy way about it and uh uh for for the uh, people that watch it on youtube uh apologies if you're into all of the technical aspects of uh of how the airplane uh stays uh, stays airborne and stuff like that it's it's just not me it's, it's not my my thing hopefully you get a, a flavor of just how much fun uh it was to fly these uh airplanes and uh, just as much fun on the hornet and I'd I'd love to come back and uh, and talk to you about it.
0: Thanks. So. And we, and we can I think the the comments on the on sort of part 1 are indicative of the fact that people love it and you know there are test pilots we can, I can go and talk to Dave Southwood ask him to come on and, and talk about um, aerodynamics and the physics and all that kind of stuff. So it's there's no no apology necessary. It's it's all good. Thanks for tuning in to Percent Century. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.